Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We are beginning a brand new series this morning called Vision 2020, Deep into Broaden. Now, you all know, those who are regular attenders and members of our church, that we do monthly series. So throughout the year, we do 12 different sermon series and what we believe is a very balanced sermonic diet. But at the end of the day, this January sermon series is not just going to be for January. This is going to be the vision that we're setting for the entire year. And so our vision as a church, manifesting Christ in many ways to many people, is not changing. It's never changed since its inception, and it won't change until whenever Jesus shall return. Our mission, we feel that God has given us, our mission is to ultimately gather people to Jesus Christ, lead them to biblical maturity for the multiplication of believers, leaders, and churches. That's not going to change. Within that mission and vision, we are believing God that as we set our hearts with priority this year and what we feel he's asking us to set priority to, that God will meet us there. How many of you know this, that that encounter meets expectation? And, And I think a lot of times we think revival in the Christian church is like a Christian lottery. It's not. Revival is a part of our inheritance as believers. It's a part of our inheritance. So what that means is, this week when we do a three-day fast, it's not like we're super Christians because we start off our year with three days of liquid. That's our inheritance. That's what's expected of us as believers. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 6, when you pray, when you fast, when you give, right? Now, I know in the evangelical church, largely, fasting has kind of been thrown to the wayside. Uh, I'm a part of a, a digital group now. They, they've called us, uh, they, they put this whole group together through a, a, some leaders within our community. And, and um, they're, they're starting something today called the Roaring Twenties Fast. They're calling in our nation right now, 5 million people under the age of 35 to fast and pray for the next 21 days. That's called the Roaring Twenties Fast. And I'm seeing this published by leader after leader. And God is finally getting a hold of people's hearts to pray and to fast. And I think that's a beautiful thing. This week, we're joining in in a three-day fast. Okay, You say, Craig, what is a liquid fast? A liquid fast is a liquid fast. Uh, you need to pl- drink plenty of water. For those of you never fasted, or, or at least in a liquid fast form, drink plenty of water. You're obviously supposed to drink half your body weight in ounces daily. That's when you're eating. You need to double that and probably drink your body weight uh, if you can when you're fasting, right, to just remove the toxins. And in the time that you normally take to eat, you go and you read Scripture, right? Fasting is not dieting in Jesus' name. Okay, so it does no good for you to fast and then not spend time with the Lord, right? Not time to eat his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so um, you say, Craig, I need some motivation. Well, what better motivation than showing up this Wednesday, 6.30 a.m., right here in this building. I'm going to be leading a corporate prayer meeting. And uh, we'll pray for one hour. We'll get you out at 7.30, and that'll kick off our fast. And uh, we've got growth phases this Thursday. And then Friday night, we've got an all-night prayer gathering. So we're believing this is going to be a remarkable landmark week in the life of this community. And uh, even if you're 50% in agreement with that, can I just get a a halfway amen? So it's going to be an awesome, awesome week, all right, as we kick in. Well, today, I want to take the opportunity to teach on the first priority of the four that we feel God has given us for 2020. And that is specifically the title of this message. We want to focus this year 
on deepening the spiritual life of seeking believers. Deepening the spiritual life of seeking believers. Now you say, Craig, what in the world does that entail? What entails a lot. We're going to talk about it today. But it's become very apparent to us as leaders and pastors in this community that a lot of times and a lot of ways that Dwelling Place as a church has grown has been from what we would call stagnant believers that live in the community around us that have never really belonged to a local congregation where they felt that they could mature in the potential of Christ on their life. Then, and the primary way we've reached them is through something called growth phases. In fact, a lot of people come into our church through growth phases before they ever attend a Sunday, and we're good with that. That's how we're structured. That's the way God gave us a strategy. But we're going to, this year, find creative ways to deepen the spiritual life of believers that are in our area that really are seeking maturity in Jesus, seeking to be all that God has called them to be, to lead unbelievers are not yet believers to Christ, but then lead those believers to maturity in Christ. Lead those believers to disciples in Jesus Christ. And the way I want to talk about that today is through everyone's favorite subject. It's called love. And here's how I know it's one of your favorites. It's January, and we've got 12 more months to Christmas, and you've already started streaming the Hallmark Christmas movies again. I mean, people love these things, right? Be honest. You know who you are. Some of you men, even some of you men got in on this, right? It hit about October, and you started watching the Hallmark movies, and you watch these things even though you know the plot is literally always entirely, totally, and completely the same. Will she choose the slick guy from the big city or the unassuming flannel-wearing guy from the small town who has a penchant for witty banter and turns out in the final scene in the movie to be the nephew of Santa Claus? Or, or the, you know, the, holds the son of inheritance of the North Pole, right? I mean, it's January, and we already need our Hallmark Christmas movie fix. And that's because, let's just be honest, we're love junkies. As the great prophet said prophet told us you might as well face it you're addicted to love all right you're addicted to love we talk about spiritual maturity we're talking about love we're talking about deepening the spiritual life of seeking believers we're talking about lives that are rooted in God's love now in Romans chapter 12 where we're going to look today we're starting in verse 9 Paul gives us a glimpse into what true love is it gives us a glimpse into what it looks like to live in the love of God. Now, this is not so much romantic love, though what we learned today will certainly have implications for that. This is the kind of love that the gospel creates in a community. This is, if we could call it this way, gospel-shaped friendship. We could call it gospel-shaped community. And the question that's begged to be asked today is, what is it that makes Christians love each other? What attracts Christians to other Christians? What makes Christians love one another. What makes followers of Jesus love each other? You know, I never forget eating with a couple many, many years ago, uh, believers. So you got to follow along with the story. But nonetheless, they were had us to eat uh, dinner, and we were eating dinner with them. And um, they start this little bit of an argument, which is no big deal. It's what it's what marriage is, right? It's uh, tamed arguments and um, or 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 really nice controlled environments. And um, and so they're arguing back and forth, and uh, it got a little bit heated, and it got really awkward. Now everybody else at the table feels awkward because these two are fighting. Anybody ever been in this situation before? And I never forget, in the midst of this fighting, I remember the husband looking at his wife and said, I just don't understand how God could have made you so beautiful and so stupid at the same time. 
That's what he said in a joking way, but in a clear way. And she said, without even blinking, I never forget it, without even blinking. She said, God made me beautiful so you would fall in love with me. And he made me stupid so I would fall in love with you. And I thought that was great, right? I thought that was great. Jesus said the the single most defining characteristic of his church would be its love. That's what he said. He said, your love for each other, when he told the disciples, is how the world will recognize you belong to me. At the end of the day, church, what convinces the world the truth of the gospel is not our defense of our faith. It's our love for one another. Now, apologetics is good, and we should study apologetics, but apologetics have their limitations. Apologetics has its limitations. And any true apologist will recognize that fact. You cannot argue people into the kingdom of God. Now listen, apologetics creates a climate that's favorable to faith, but it doesn't create faith. Faith normally comes about as someone is deeply loved by another believer, enough to share the gospel, enough to live as a gospel witness in front of that individual, and then they ultimately come to repentance in Jesus Christ. It's like Francis Schaeffer once said, he said that love on display in the church is Jesus' final apologetic to the world. Jesus' final apologetic is love. Love between brothers and sisters. Y'all, I really think if we do this right, if we major in this major and we minor in the minors, outreach would get a whole lot easier in our church. We wouldn't really need great music and we wouldn't need special services to track people to our church. I think people would be beating the doors down if we would actively live in Christ-like love in the world around us. To really love people the way Jesus loves us. You say, well, what does that love look like? Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 begins to share with us verses 9 through 13 of this love towards friends, what we call seeking believers, what we're terming seeking believers. Verses 14 through 21, which we're not going to look at today, it's talking about that love towards enemies or the outsider. But he gives a clear picture of what Christian love is to look like. I want to give you today what I'm calling six characteristics of gospel-shaped love. By the way, as we go through these, please understand it's really important to keep in mind that everything Paul says in Romans 12 comes after Romans 12.1. He spends 11 chapters talking to us about the gospel, and then he starts off 12 with, therefore. Therefore, in other words, in light of the mercies of God, he gives this explanation of what a response to the gospel looks like. Now, you got to understand that. You have to understand that when he gives you these, these, these realities of what a life looks like, this is in response to the gospel. In other words, you can't do this on your own. This kind of love is only able to be performed or engaged or embodied, I should say, as a response to the gospel. Here's number one. Our love should be without hypocrisy. Our love should be without hypocrisy. If we're going to deepen the spiritual life of seeking believers, our love has to be without hypocrisy. I love verse 9. He said, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, love should be sincere. Love should be non-phony. Now, y'all, churches, particularly here in the South, can be places of phony love. Everybody seems really warm on the outside, very warm and polite and helpful, but underneath the veneer, particularly in the South, right? We're in the Bible Belt, and then we're on the buckle of the Bible Belt. A lot of times is a heart full of backbiting, a heart full of jealousy, a heart full of gossiping, and even hatred. You've felt it before, haven't you? You ever felt it before, in a, even in a Christian setting? Or maybe you felt it in a Southern society? A little bit of a phony love. One of the worst Southern phrases is, bless his heart. 
Or bless her heart, right? That means what I just said is really mean, but I'm going to make it seasoned with some southern politeness, right? Like that woman is a snake, bless her heart. He's dumber than a box of rocks, bless his heart. You know, he ain't got nothing physically going for him, but bless his heart. He's a great, great personality, you know? It's like in the South, we believe, with all due respect, you know, you can say with all due respect, and then whatever you want to say works, but that's not the reality. Or you ever been around people who love to gossip in the form of prayer request? You ever been in that kind of connect group? Those are amazing, right? Oh, I know something about Denise we need to be praying about. Y'all know about Denise? Let's, let's get out of board real quick and write down what Denise has done over this last week. Because we, we need to put her on our prayer list. That's a phony love. It's a phony love. Some of Jesus' strongest words in the Gospels were about people like that. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said they're beautiful on the outside but full of death on the inside. And the closer you get to somebody's heart, the more you're able to sense that. That no amount of politeness or pleasantness of personality can cover what's rotting on the inside. There's a lot of people that got a great personality. But over a period of time, you'll come to find out very quickly whether they're alive on the inside or they're not. It's like the man who a few years ago on a chilly November morning got in his car and it made a weird sound started up the car like something was grinding but then it stopped so he assumed whatever it was is gone I don't know if you ever take this kind of mentality with your car but it's not always the best posture but if it goes away you just keep on driving it and so the noise was grinding again and later day later in the day after work he got into the car and it smelled kind of weird it wasn't terrible but it smelled kind of weird. He started it back up again, and every day it got worse. And then he would run the heat, and it would get worse. And, the, and the, the, the stench was getting worse and worse. So he bought one of those little deodorizers to go, and he filled them on every single, you know, uh, uh, little vent, right? And tried to get the. And then he got a whole bottle of Febreze and started up the heater and literally emptied out a whole bottle of Febreze down in that thing to hopefully take care of the smell well finally when it didn't take care of it he took it to the mechanic and the mechanic comes back and he's holding a ziploc bag and there's like a chewed up mouse right he's like i found your problem right there ain't no amount of febreze or deodorizer that's going to take care of that nasty spell that's exactly what paul says love without hypocrisy love with hypocrisy you can you can cover it with all kinds of politeness you can do it for a good season but at some point the dead smell will come out of your mouth the dead smell will come out of your actions. There's no politeness that can cover it up. No amount of Febreze that will make you more lovely. And Paul says as believers, our love should be different. It should be love all the way down. It should be love genuine. Now that's an easy thing to say, right? It's an easy thing to say, Pastor Craig, yeah, preach about love. But it's difficult sometimes to love. We call them EGRs. You ever had an EGR in your life? EGRs are extra grace required people. So you guys, it would be good if God just put on their forehead EGR before you interacted with them, right? So you would know to kind of stay far away. But the EGR people, some people, I had a lady tell me in our church a couple weeks ago, she said, we're trying to love, but this lady's making it really difficult to love. That's what she told me. She's making it dog hard to try to love her. I mean, it is difficult. They have flaws, flaws that hurt you, flaws that are annoying. So how can love be without hypocrisy when people annoy you or hurt you or you just don't? like them that much who are you thinking about right now just point at them i'm just kidding don't do that don't don't do that well that's where romans 12 1 kicks in he says therefore in light of god's mercies the gospel now enables me to love someone despite their flaws why let me tell you why the gospel teaches me how to really love it's because i will never have to forgive anyone else in my life more than jesus forgave me 
Listen, let me tell you how the gospel really helps you love. It's because you understand and know that you will never meet somebody more annoying than you were to God at some point. That's why the gospel liberates you. And what happens then is you understand I never have to love someone more annoying than I was to God. So now when I get that kind of understanding, then what happens is it puts me in touch with the tenderness of God for me. And it puts me in touch with the tenderness of God for the people around me. I've used it before, but it's my favorite parable. In John uh, or Matthew chapter 18, a man is forgiven of 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents he owes. And it wrecked me again. I was reading it again. The basic gist is this, a king had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that ginormous size of that amount doesn't really register with us because we don't know what 10,000 talents is. But let me just go ahead and tell you what that is. King Herod, richest man, richest king who ever lived at the time of Jesus. When you take up every one of his, part of his kingdom, his mansions, and all the taxes he received, his yearly salary was 900 talents. What Jesus is saying here is this is an incalculable debt. It's a ginormous debt. He owes the judge 10,000 talents. So the king says, I'm going to threaten to sell you and your family to pay back the debt. Because that's what you did those days. Verse 26 in Matthew 18, the Bible says at this, the servant fell down face forward there in the courtroom and said, be patient with me, master, and I'll, I'll repay you everything. And the master of that servant had compassion on him, released him, and forgave him the loan. See, the forgiveness, y'all, is as spectacular as the size of the debt. And that's the point. Jesus wants to real, us to realize that sin is an incalculable debt we could never pay back. No amount of contrition, no amount of brokenness, no amount of good actions, no amount of good works can repay the debt of dishonor that we have heaped upon God through our own sin. But yet in this story, in Jesus' story, the servant did not receive the forgiveness for what it was. It was stunning. It was breathtaking. It was undeserved. In fact, the Bible, go read it. Jesus never says, the man says, thank you. He never even says thank you to the king that released him of this ginormous debt. Even more incredibly, he walks out of the courtroom. He encounters a man across the street who owes him a single denarius. Single denarius is a poor man's daily wage. He just got forgiven of 10,000 talents. And this one dude owes him, you know, 35 cents on the old school, you know, telephone, uh, pay phone, right? And he's standing outside on this, this, this uh, you know, sidewalk, and he seizes the man, the Bible says, and he begins to choke him. And he says, pay me what you owe. And this man pleads for patience, but the servant shows him none, and he puts him in prison until he can pay the debt. The king hears about it, and he is ticked off. The king hears about what the servant does and he puts him, he comes back and he brings the man in and he says, verse 32, you wicked servant, I forgave all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, he handed him over to the jailers until he could pay everything that was owed. And Jesus then cuts right to the heart of the conclusion. He says, verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do unto you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from their heart. What are you saying, Craig? The point of the parable is that God has no obligation to save a person who claims to be his disciple if they've never been able to forgive the people in their life. That God has no obligation to save you. He has no obligation to show you that mercy, that undeserved, heart-wrenching mercy. If we claim to be forgiven by Jesus, but there is no sweetness of forgiveness in our hearts and no patience and love to our brothers and sisters, then God's forgiveness is simply not in our hearts. 
It's just not in our heart. It might be in our head, but it's not made its way into our heart. See, people moved and been, people that have been moved by the gospel, first of all, they have a sweetness in worship. They have a sweetness. When they come in on Sunday mornings, it's a recognition of how much they owe to God. They're not worried about what song selection comes in. Listen, you remember? You remember when you first met Jesus about the, 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 the worship that flowed up out of your heart? You didn't care what musicians were on stage. You didn't care if they were singing your song or not your song this week. You came in ready to worship. And what happens is that translates into a tenderness towards others. We recognize how much we've been loved despite our flaws, and how much we've been forgiven of despite our sin. So, Craig, what do you do when you feel like your love has hypocrisy on it? Do you not be true to each other? We just throw away our politeness and act out whatever's filling in our hearts and just eat each other? No, no. This is what you do. You still choose to act in love and be kind and polite even when you don't feel like it. And then when you get in secret, what you do is you repent of your, your ungrateful, unkind, hate-filled heart and ask God to change it and beg God to change it by pressing more deeply into the mercies of God for you. I remember very early on in my Christian journey, folks, I was, I was, I was very discouraged. And I was discouraged because I knew my heart was not what other people thought my heart was. Because I was really good growing up in the South being polite and I can show love to people, but I knew in my heart I was still competitive. I knew I was still jealous about other believers. I knew I still had issues in my heart. So you know what I did? I never forget coming to a place where I just laid before God and I begged him and said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm awful at living the Christian life. And you know what the Lord said to me? Good. Now you're finally ready to begin to live the Christian life. Why, Craig? Because Christian life is not about you, Craig, becoming more loving for me. It's about you surrendering so I can produce my love through you. See, it's not until you get to the place where you say, my heart, sucks God it's really ugly and it does not love people the way everybody at church thinks it loves people so I'm going to keep being polite but you're going to have to do something right here God you're going to have to change this and here I am near years later I'm a pastor and I still feel myself sometimes with smugness in my heart I still feel hypocrisy in my heart. I still have to live in a posture of repentance before God, constantly asking God to change me, constantly pressing into his mercies and remembering that I'll never have to be more patient with someone than God has been patient with me. I would never be asked to forgive anyone of anything more than what God has forgiven me. So listen, a bunch of y'all, you need to stop pretending and you need to start repenting. That's a, that's a 2020 goal. Stop pretending and start repenting and come before the Lord. Listen, Jesus can't help you until you expose the wickedness of your heart to him. I don't know how else to say this. Jesus did not die for the fake you. He didn't die for the fake you. A real Jesus died on a real cross for the real you, and it's only when you expose the real you do you get changed. But as long as you expose the fake you, you'll never change because he didn't die for that person. He died for you. He died for the real you. And admit, man, I've got a dead mouse in there rotting in my heart. And there ain't no Febreze that's going to cover it up. When you do that, the healing power of God begins to work. Here's number two. Our love should be grounded in God's truth. Grounded in God's truth. Look at verse 9. He said, detest evil and cling to what is good. I like that. Detest evil. If we're going to deepen the spiritual life of seeking believers, we're going to have to let our love be grounded in God's truth. Now, you say, Craig, what does that mean? Love has to be grounded in God's truth because we recognize love that is not grounded in God's truth is really not love at all. 
Listen, when you care about someone, your sense of right and wrong kind of gets thrown off sometimes because you just want them to be happy, right? I call it a bound heart. When you get married and you got a bound heart, what that means is if it makes them happy, it makes you happy. If they're weeping, you want to weep. So what happens is in that environment, when, when you see them doing something you know is wrong but it makes them happy, you don't really want to say anything because you don't want to make them upset. That's not really love. Now, that's what America says love is. That's not what love is, okay? Love is not just being okay with someone doing something that you know is wrong and not rooted in truth just because you want them to like you more than you want to love them. That's not true biblical love. It's a lack of love. Have you ever seen a parent who's just too weak to discipline their child even when it's necessary? Come on, anybody ever wanted to punch a little kid for Jesus? Just me? Okay, cool. All right, awesome. I don't know if you've ever wanted to punch a little kid for Jesus, but... um. But it happens sometimes, okay? You ever seen a parent like that? And they can't bear the tears and the anger of their kids because they want to be their kid's best friend, not their parent. And so what happens? They cave, giving the kid what they want, even though it's not good for the child. And when you do that, it's not that you love your child too much, you love them too little. And somebody has to have enough umph to tell you that. No, you actually love yourself more than you love your kid because you want your kid to turn out worse than you. That's not love. That's not love. Love has to be rooted in God's truth. Those type of parents often love themselves more than they love their child. I think one of the first times I experienced this, Knox was probably, I don't know, three years old. His, his, his little sister was like an infant. And um, coming down the steps one day, Mary, happened to Mary too. The, the, he, he was playing, doing kick, 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 kick. Heel, toe, do he do Heel, toe, do he do And he's pulling her closer to the edge of the couch. Not knowing, he's innocently doing it, and she's about to fall off. And I run down our apartment, jump over the little, I don't know what you call that, the railing, jumped over the railing, and I, I flabbergasted him. I tackled him to the ground right there on, in front of the couch because I was trying to protect his sister from falling off and bumping her head. I never forget, he was underneath me, and he looked at me with those eyes. He was dismayed. He thought, you're the protector of my life. How in the world did you just tackle me? Right? You look like a linebacker for the Pittsburgh Steelers or Tennessee Titans. We won last night. That was awesome. Um, I'm a Titans fan and a Falcons fan. But, but I tackled him to the ground like this. And in that moment, he's thinking, man, you don't love me. But you know why I tackled him? Because I do love him. And I love his sister. It's the exact opposite of what he thinks. The parent who doesn't go through the pains of discipline and correction ultimately doesn't love their kids too much. They ultimately... Love their kids too little. The same thing applies to our relationships in the church. Now listen, I'm not saying we discipline one another. What I'm saying is we got to love each other enough to tell the truth because love that's not based on the truth is not love at all. It's not love at all. In other words, we like people liking us more than we actually love them. And that's not biblical love. So if that means I go to a seeking believer who is stagnant and not growing in their faith, then I speak the truth and love enough to them to hopefully build a disparity so that they have a desire in 2020 to say, I want to take steps forward in my journey with Jesus. But it takes me loving them, loving them. That word detest there in verse 10, it literally means to treat it like a disease. Detest evil. What does that mean? Recognize evil for the corrupting power that it is. And he said, cling to what is good. You know what cling means? It means to glue yourself in separately as is you're to hang on to it for dear life. Listen, a love that will not warn other people of the dangers of evil is not love. When you won't tell the truth to someone, what is motivating you is not your love for them, 
It's a selfish desire for you to be loved. And you're afraid of losing their affection more than you love them. You love their comfort more than you love maybe the well-being of their life or their future. Love has to be rooted in God's truth. Listen, y'all. Jesus loved us enough to tell us the truth even when we got so mad at him that we killed him for it. And Paul says, love people like that. Love people like that. Here's number three. Our love should feel like a family. Our love should feel like a family. You want to know what seeking believers in Woodstock, Cherokee County want? Listen, folks, size does not attract people. If a church gets larger, <coughs> larger alone doesn't attract people. Love attracts people. People shun cold churches and they flock to where they're loved. They're flocked to where they're accepted. And our church should feel like a family. Craig, did you make that up? No, look at verse 10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Now, there's two interesting Greek words there. Love one another deeply. Love there is the word philostorhe. That's two Greek words in one word. Phileo means love between friends, city of Philadelphia, brotherly love. And storhe is affection. You know what it's like? This is like a love sandwich. Listen, what Greek is saying right here is love, love each other. Love, love each other. As dear brothers and sisters. Phileo, storhe. Phileo, storhe. Love, love. I want you to have a love sandwich in the church deeply. In other words, what's he saying? The love at work in the body of Christ should resemble the love at work in a nuclear family. Now, I understand some of us got jacked up families, okay? So please understand what I say from here on out. You got to see through the lens of a healthy family, okay? A healthy family. In a healthy family, if your sibling develops a problem, you don't give up on them. Oh, I want a new model. Yeah, I'm done with my brother. I need a new model. I'm done with my sister. I need a new model. If your parents become needy in their old age, you don't say, well, just don't have space for this in my life. Sorry, you changed my diaper for two and a half years. Paid for my every need till I was 18. No, what you do is you rearrange your life to take care of them, even if they have to move in with you. That's a family. See, that's not friends. That's not Sunday attendance. That's a family. If your kid calls a problem at school or starts to develop this annoying character trait, you don't call him and say, hey, listen, sorry, buddy. It's not working out for your mom and I. Sorry, Knox. Um, it's just not you. It's us. It's not you. Don't, don't, but, but I'm, I'm going to call the escort agency and they're going to, you can pack up your things. Okay, son, and you're just going to have to move out. Now, you might be tempted sometimes to do that with your teenagers, but you don't do it, right? No, you're devoted to them, even with their faults, their family. Listen, in family, the problems experienced by one family member is experienced by all family members. If one family member hurts, all family members hurt. Can I just, can I just tell you something real quick? I know beyond the shadow of a doubt, there is a group of people. I'm not saying everybody, but there's a group of people in this church right now that are committed to walk the rest of my life with me. And they take on my problems at their own. And the thing is, when they know, they know something's wrong when something's wrong with me. And they're going to be there through every season of life. If I walk through a time of financial burden, they're going to be there. If I walk through a time of suffering in my body, they're going to be there. They're close enough to me to know that there is a problem. And I know they won't give up on me. Even if I'm rude at this year's proverbial Thanksgiving dinner, I still get invited back to next year's dinner. Why? Because love in the family doesn't even need to be reciprocal. Mama, you don't stop loving your teenager just because they don't love you through a season. How cheap is that love? I love how C.S. Lewis says this. He says, love is never wasted. 
its value doesn't rest on reciprocity. How could love be wasted? It doesn't, it doesn't have a value based on someone giving it back. It's constant. It never changes. And you know what Paul says? He says the body of Christ should look like that. He said the church of Jesus Christ should look like that. I've got an honest question for you today. Would you focus in? Is that how you would compare your commitment to this church right now? Is that how you would compare your commitment to the body of Christ? See, when I talk with my pastor friends, hey, what do, how do people view church today? A lot of people view it like an intramural soccer team. You enjoy it, but it's a weekend event. You come in as a consumer, you have a little fun, but you're not doing it for exercise, really. It's only one night a week. It's pretty low on your list of priorities. Other people, they treat, they treat church like it's their commitment to a new season of The Voice. At the beginning of the season, you watch it, right? Hey, this is January. You know what that means? New people going to come into church. They're going to come into church the next few weeks, right? It's a new season. It's a new day, but they're not committed to it. So what happens? The moment somebody gets up there that sings a song they don't like, they stop watching it. Or the moment that one boredom pang hits them, they're changing the channel. There ain't no more voice for them, right? Or maybe they don't like how Blake Shelton chooses one person over another. So what are they doing? They're not letting him turn his chair. They're turning their chair, and they're going to another channel, right? It's like they stream a channel. Or even worse, some people treat church like it's a, a free trial of a streaming service. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You sign up for a two-week trial, but you actually like some of what you're getting. So you've been switching between, what do you do? You've done it. You've switched email addresses eight times. You're on like week 16 of the free trial, right? Some point, ACC Network is going to look and realize Craig.Mosgrove 12, Craig.Mosgrove 13, Craig.Mosgrove 14. They're going to they're realize something's going wrong here, okay? This dude must want to watch some dude games, right? Like we treat it like it's a free streaming service. But the reality is, is that church shouldn't be like that. It's a family. Listen, the church is not an event you attend. It's a family you belong to. If you want to see the spiritual life of seeking believers be deep, and you know what that means? You're going to have to get committed. You're going to have to lock the door. You know what that means? That means you lock the door and you say, I'm here. Whatever happens in these relationships, we're going to work through it. My wife and I, best marriage advice we ever received early on, even in our premarital counseling, they said, listen, divorce is just not even a word you use. So it just doesn't come up. So till you meet Jesus, just don't even say the word. Why? Lock the door on divorce, throw away the key, and listen. That way when you get in a fight, you look at each other and say, we've got irreconcilable differences. How many people I've seen come to me as a pastor and say, we've just got irreconcilable differences? I'm like, my wife and I have more irreconcilable differences that go from here to our house on a sheet of paper. But when we're committed and we've locked away the key, we look at each other and say, if it's irreconcilable, it better get reconcilable because I ain't living in this one room with you for the rest of our life until we reconcile. That's what people don't do with a church. Why? Because they're consumers. They don't treat a church like that. It's an event they attend. So if they don't like it or they get rubbed wrong, they go to the next one. The problem is you follow you wherever you go. You've been hurt at this church, that church, this church, that church. And the, the sucky thing is you can't get away from you. But that's not what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where iron sharpens iron. It's supposed to be a place where you engage in what it means to actually grow. To actually engage one another. To really, really grow. And by the way, let me just say, that's why leaving a church and going to a new one should be a serious, serious decision. I'm not saying there's not a time for it, but you're not just changing channels. You're leaving one family and you're going to another 
family. I'm not saying there's not a time to do it, only that you don't flit around churches like you're changing channels based upon the mood you're in. This is not the way church works. It's not the way God wants your soul to prosper. Whatever church God leads you to be in, it should be like your family, whether it's this church or another church. And by the way, those that are streaming live, let me just go ahead and say, if you're streaming live or you're listening to the podcast today and this is your only experience with church, you need to turn it off and you need to go find a local church and you need to commit to it. That's, what, that's not what live streaming's for. Live streaming is for people that are in our community that maybe are not able to make it. But your experience for church is not for you to stream a channel or to sit behind a desk. It's for you to engage his people. It's to be in relationship with his people. I don't know how much more clear I can get, but that's what Paul's saying. That's what it means to deepen the spiritual life of seeking believers. Number four, our love should recognize the inherent worth God has placed in every person. Look at verse 10. He said, outdo one another in showing honor. Hey, I'm a competitive person. Any other competitive people? If you're a competitive person, you need to join me in this competition. Why don't in 2020 we try to outcompete one another in showing honor? You want to talk about an awesome competition. To show honor means to recognize, watch this, and acknowledge the value someone has. And every culture shows honor, don't they? But the basis of honor is usually by stature or rank or accomplishment. In old Europe, it was about your family name, your pedigree, your surname. You know what it is in America? It's about your accomplishments. We honor people based on their accomplishments. You know what the gospel does? It teaches us to think about people totally different. The gospel teaches us to look and view people totally different. It teaches us that every person has great value because every person is someone made in the image of God. Even your uncle, you know, your drunk Uncle Willie who shows up at every Thanksgiving dinner and messes things up. He's still made in the image of God. And we don't honor them because of what they've accomplished. No, no, we honor them because they're made in the image of God. Look at me, church. Look, every believer in this room right now is someone purchased at the highest price ever paid for something in the universe called the blood of the Son of God. And every believer in this room possesses the Spirit of God and is destined to one day rule with Christ and even rule over angels. And some of you are like, whoa. It's hard to see that now. But that's their future. Every believer at your work right now was bought with the precious blood of Jesus, the most costly investment in the history of the universe. Do you know what that means? It means that you have to do all that you can to outdo one another in honor. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes from him in the book called The Weight of Glory. He said this, he said, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person, don't point at him, you talk to, may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. They're going to be so glorified. Or else that person is a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. The person that is the most uninteresting is going to be so brilliant one day that you'll be tempted to worship them. That's the future because we're created in the image of God. And Jesus bought us with his precious blood. So I treat everybody like they're a celebrity. I treat everybody with dignity. I trip, we trip over each other trying to show honor. That's what we're called to do. One of the distinctive features of Jesus' church should be this. I just read a book by Rodney Starks. He's a, he's a uh, psychologist, <clears throat> sociologist. 
And um, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he says this is one of the distinctive features in the early uh, church. In the Roman Empire, he said, this is what he said, the church was the only place where the poor, the immigrants, and people of different rank and nationality were treated with the same honor that comes from being a child of God. He said the slave and the master were equal. <laughs> you remember what Paul said to Philemon and Onesimus? Hey, he just, I love that book. Go read Philemon. What is, what is, instead of just confronting him, you know what Paul does? He just puts out the gospel like a nine millimeter and sets it on the table. He doesn't say anything. Just says, you deal with it. The gospel makes your slave just as important as you. And he just lays it on the table. In other words, we treat them with the same respect. And that was incredibly attractive to the early church. It's one of the reasons the most fascinating ministries of the early church was called the baby run. The baby runs. Did you know what happened before surgical abortion in the Roman Empire? If you didn't want a baby, you know what you did? You left it on the doorstep. And then it died overnight. If it didn't die overnight, the sanitation would get it the next morning, whether it was dead or living, and it would throw it into the trash pile. Then it would burn it. And that's what you did. That's what you did if you didn't want your child. So even if mama didn't have value on you, you're still infinitely precious. Why? This is the church, what they would do. They'd get out in the middle of the night, and they'd walk through the streets listening for baby cries. And they would listen for baby cries and they would go get a baby and they would bring it together. This is early pro-life advocacy. This is what the beginning of orphanages look like. Why? Why did the church grow so quickly? Stage lights, good songs, great live stream? No, it's because you got people who've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus walking through dark neighborhoods at night listening for baby cries. That's love. That's self-sacrificial, Christ-like love. Looking for those that we can outdo. Show honor to people that are not getting honor. I think one of the most beautiful realities and things that I've seen this done is, and, and I want to do it here, we will do it maybe in the future, is, is these people throw a prom for mentally handicapped high school students. It's called a night to shine, right? Tim Tebow does it. They do it at Woodstock first, right? I love it. It's what I want to do with single moms. Man, I wish somebody would get that heart this year. And do something like this with single moms in our community. And what happens is they recognize that the, the Down syndrome kids and disabilities never get to experience prom. So what they do is they host it on their church campus and they go all out. They get lights and music and food. Everybody dresses up in tuxes. And some of the kids come in limousines. And when the, the Down syndrome kids get out of the limousine, they have a red carpet. And everybody has created a tunnel. And they cheer them on and they honor them in ways that society does not honor them. And Jesus is shown in that. You outdo one another by honoring one another, by loving one another, honoring seeking believers in our community. Y'all, that should be a distinguishing feature of our church. I'm not going to pretend to know everything there is about immigration. It's a hot topic right now. I'm not going to pretend to know all the solutions, but let me tell you what I do know and what I'll continue to say as a pastor. I, I actually told a pastor friend this week, if you, the harder you find the harder you find it to discover whether or not we're right or left or this candidate or that candidate means that we're probably preaching Jesus more faithfully. <laughs> but let me tell you one thing I do know. What I do know is that every immigrant is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated as such, and Jesus died for every single one of them. Regardless of what happens this week, every Iranian is made in the image of God, folks. I don't care what the news tells you. That's not how the church acts. That's not what the church does. That's not how we speak. That's not what we post. 
They're made in the image of God and we're called to outdo one another in showing honor for one another. The reason abortion is wrong and evil is because it, it fails to recognize that baby. Even if it has a cleft palate, even if it has defects, even if it's unwanted by her parents, is still a human being made in the image of God. Made in God's image. The reason racism and prejudice, you want to get me mad? Racism and prejudice, why is it evil? It's because it refuses to recognize the honor and dignity that God has given to one of his own children. That's why it's evil. That's why the reason we've worked so hard for value of guests here. One of the reasons we work so hard in making guests feel welcome here, from the moment they drive onto our property, I always tell our team, you are preaching the sermon first. And the reason we do that is because we want every person to walk through those doors and know they matter to God. Jesus gave his blood for them and you matter to us. That's what I tell our welcome team. The value of the guest determines our level of preparation. So if we value guests low, we won't prepare well. If we value guests high, we'll prepare well. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. And we want them to feel that they belong. That there's honor and there's dignity. So are you, are you a competitive person? Why don't you start competing with others about this this year? Try to outdo one another. Let me give you a 2020 goal and I'll hit number five. In 2020, why don't you be an overly generous person and watch God show off in your life? Just find ways to honor people this year. Just find ways to take seeking believers and outdo them. Honor them, serve them, be generous to them, and watch God get involved. Watch God show off in their life. Here's number five. Our love should brim with the inherent optimism of God's promises. I want you to hear this one because our world's getting darker and darker. And too often our, our church's lips and language begins to mirror more of the culture than it does Christ's promise. Our love should overflow with inherent optimism. He gives us six commands. Now, I'm not lumping these all together because I think I'm out of time today. I'm lumping these six together because I think they actually belong together. And look at verse 11 and 12. He gives six commands. I'm going to rattle them off. He says, don't lack in diligence. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Patient in affliction. Persistent in prayer. Now listen, all of those lumped together in one Speak to our attitude towards one another. Now look, if you look at those, I've heard those preached my whole life as being you and God. That is not what Romans 12 is about. These are in relationship to one another. You're supposed to be fervent in the spirit for your brother. He's not talking about to the Lord here. You're supposed to be not lacking in diligence and zeal for your brother and your sister. You're supposed to rejoice in hope for your brother when your brother's unable to rejoice. They're about... Ultimately, how we minister to another. In other words, I can what? I can have the hope of the gospel that is promised in people's lives. And I can rejoice in hope and be patient in affliction. Why? Because every time I stand up on this stage, I'm never preaching to anyone who still has breath in their body that Jesus is not capable of saving. There's nobody that Jesus can't save. There's no life that's too far removed from his grace. There are no degrees of deadness. There's just dead. And if someone's dead, they can have new life. Why? Because Jesus got up out of a grave. So religion, what does religion do? It cleans up corpses. God raises the dead. We're not about religion. We're about the grace of God touching dead ears, dead lives, and resurrecting them. 
So no one's too far removed from God. I'm never talking to someone who's too far gone. I'm never preaching to somebody who's too bound up. No matter who I'm talking to, I can give hope. That's why Paul said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because the resurrection power proves your labor is not in vain. If Jesus got up out of a grave, there's nothing you're doing in your workplace that's in vain. Nothing. Nothing at all. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up wings of eagles and shall run and not be weary, shall walk and not faint. Why? When someone's severely afflicted, we can help bear it with patience because we know God is working all things together for their good. And that what Satan or their ex-spouse or, or their boss or what other people might mean for their evil, God will turn it for their good. We can be persistent in prayer. Why? Because we have a God who hears and answers prayer. And Jesus told them this story so that they also ought to pray and never lose heart. He told the story of the widow who kept coming to the judge's door, Luke 18, until her request was answered. We're to persevere night and day until God answers our prayer and changes the hearts of the ones we love. (coughs) So the seeking believers in your life, you keep on knocking on the door. You keep on praying. Why? Because Psalm 103, 17 said, From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's faithful love is towards those who fear him. And his righteousness extends even towards our children's children. And I'm not going to let go until he fulfills that. What if some daddies and mamas this week in a three-day fast got Psalm 103, 17 before the Lord and said, God, you promised you'd not only be kind to me, you're going to be kind to my kids, and you're going to be kind to my kids' kids, and you're going to be kind to my kids' 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 kids, and you're going to be kind to the kids' 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 kids. And that's a promise that you gave me in the gospel. So, Lord, I'm believing your kindness will be for my posterity. Your kindness will be for my grandchildren. That's a promise. That's an inherent optimism. These are the promises of the gospel that we stand on. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, Psalm 27, 13. I will fix my eyes upon God because he's my refuge and he will not let death overtake me, Psalm 141, 8. So I'm optimistic, y'all. Hey, Newsflash, I'm optimistic about 2020. Hey, newsflash, I'm optimistic about the future of the Mossgroves. I'm optimistic about the future of Dwelling Place Church. I'm optimistic about the future of the church of Jesus Christ in our nation. As William Carey said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. And no one ever injured their eyesight by looking on the bright side of things. Optimism. Why? My God never sleeps. He never slumbers. Which means I can't overestimate the size of his mercy. I can't overestimate it. Number six and finally, our love should express itself in tangible actions. Listen, this year we need to move more away from a theology that's abstract and get it real earthy and tangible. Right? Get away from the abstract and make it tangible. What does that mean? Verse 13, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality. I don't have time to be long here. Let me just tell you one thing. Paul said, our actions, our love should not be an action. Our words only. It's got to be in actions. And the scholars here, by the way, look at that verse. They distinguish these two. Look at this. Share with the saints and their needs is those inside the church. And pursue hospitality is those outside the church. Because anytime you see hospitality in the scripture, he's talking about those outside the church. So what we're doing in week one is focusing on that first part. Share with the saints and their needs. Then we open up our homes to hospitality. You know what that means? By the way, the order is important here if you study this. Because what? Taking care of each other comes first. That's because we're family. 
Then, after we've taken care of one another, we open up our homes to the outsiders. That means we go after seeking believers who are not growing in their faith before we even go after the unbeliever. That's what he's essentially saying here. Why? No one should have need. There should be no needy here. We should be so committed to each other that we bear one another's burdens, whether it's financial or emotional, kids. And that love and commitment should then spill out into the streets. The Roman Emperor Julian, this guy was a, this guy was a rascal. He was a, he was a number one enemy of the church in the first century. And this is what he said in disgust. He could not figure out why the church was growing. So he writes these words. He said, the Christian cause has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It's a scandal. What's the deal? What? Look at the nerve of those people that there's not a single one who's a beggar. We can't find any Christians who are needy. And that the godless Galileans, that's his pejorative for Christians, the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but they care for ours as well. This is an enemy of the Christian faith, a persecutor. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we as the government should render them. And what's he saying? Ah, they called him Julian the Apostate, by the way, in the early church. And this is what he said. What's he said? You can't find a needy person near them. You get around the church, ain't nobody needy. How dare them? How dare them? How did the church multiply, Craig, in the first century? Oh, I'll tell you, great musicians. Great facilities. Good live stream. People in Congress, that's how it is. You've got to get them in the presidential office. Once a Christian gets in there, then people will be... The church multiplied because the church loved. And that's how Jesus said, oh, the world would know you're my disciple. So there it is. There it is. Six ways you should love. You ready? Be without hypocrisy. Be grounded in God's truth. Feel like family. Recognize the inherent worth God's put in every person. Brim with inherent optimism and express itself in tangible actions. Can I ask a question? Is that the kind of community you want to be a part of? That's the kind of community I want to be a part of. Come on, team. As we close, I just want to ask you, is that, the, is that your relationship to this church? For some of you, you need to join. That, that would be step one, by the way. By the way, you can do that today. You can get signed up for that. Our Welcome to DP parties the last Sunday in March. You can join. You can be a member of this church. Ah, oh, Pastor Craig, I'm committed. I just hadn't joined yet. Well, if you were a dad and you said that about your daughter... Oh, son, come on in here. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be with your daughter for the rest of my life. I'm just not going to marry her. That wouldn't go well, would it? I'm committed. I'm just not. No, there are some relationships in life that desire and deserve a covenant. They deserve a covenant that says I'm going to be accountable to you. You're going to be accountable to me. For some of you, that's what you got to do this year. That's your step. Others of you know what it is. Are you connected? Connected in a connect group? Volunteering in a giving gifting team? Are you engaging others' lives in such a way that you know their needs and they know yours? When you miss a Sunday, they know you're not here. You know they're not here. Are you engaging that way? Say, Craig, is it time to act? Yeah, it is time to act. And I know this is a lot of shoulds. Your love should. You should love like this. Don't mess. Paul connects all these shoulds to being saturated in the gospel. It's not an accident that Paul waited 12 chapters before he gave you any command. Why? 
Because the fire to do in the Christian life comes from being soaked in the fuel of what has been done. When I soak in the fuel of what Christ has done, I have the fire to do what he's asking me to do. I can't do these shoulds without being saturated in the gospel. Rooting myself in the love of God for me is how God's love grows in me for other people. So if I'm not loving other people in my life, I need to become aware again of how much he loves me. That's what liberates me. The gospel is the Christian root. Richard Seltzer, I've shared this with you before, but I'll share it in closing. He writes in a book. I love this book. He writes in a book. The book is called uh, Mortal Lessons, Notes on the Art of Surgery. And he writes of an experience he has as a physician. And it demonstrates the love God has for us. He said, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy. It's clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that, he said. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve. He goes on and says, her young husband's in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, the doctor private. Who are they, I ask myself, and who is this wry mouth I have made who gaze it, touch each other so generously and greedily? And the young woman speaks, says, will my mouth always be like this? She asks, yes, I say it will, as the doctor. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. Once he smiles, I like it, he said. It's kind of cute. And all at once, I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers. To show her that their kiss still works. I just pray that in all the pain and failures and weaknesses of the culture in Woodstock, they would realize that God's kiss still works. That his gospel still meets them. He will accommodate his lips around whatever their lips look like and he will kiss them on the lips. His gospel will touch them where they're at. His gospel will touch whatever brokenness they're facing. Why? Because his love still works. So let's deepen the life of seeking believers this year. Let's go after one another. Let's outdo one another. Let's honor one another because his love is so precious. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. 